Hello, everyone. Robert Walker here, along with Caleb Pierce, and we are Sheep Things Podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to get down to the basics with industry leaders, associations, breeders, owners, vets, suppliers, and anyone else we can find to hear their stories and firsthand experiences. Hopefully, we will ask the right questions to see what makes them successful, how they got started, and what they see for the future of the sheep industry. We hope to have something new weekly that we can share, so stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates as they are published. Stay tuned as we try to share our learning experience with you all as we dive into the sheep industry together. Welcome to the Sheep Things Podcast. You're listening to episode 22, a continuation of our discussion with Dr. Parker. Uh, today is another fantastic interview with him. Um, not necessarily as fantastic from our side, but fantastic just to continue to hear his incredible wealth of information. Today we're going to dive into a little bit about genetics and selection and what the sheep industry should be selecting on, as well as a few other topics. So stay tuned and uh, enjoy this episode with Dr. Parker. Well, the, one, of the, one of the things that you came out with in your questions, and uh, we had a World Sheep and Wool Congress that was held in Pomona, California in 1998, and uh, I was involved with the program development, and we had a fellow by the name of Dr. Dwayne Ocker. He'd been raised in, on a farm in Iowa, I believe had advanced to then the uh, Dean of College of Agriculture at South Dakota State University, worked in the government. He was our key leader, key speaker at the uh, World Sheep and Wool Congress. And this is something that he had to say here, thinking about the future now. This is 1998. Will the US sheep industry be around in 2020? He continued. Now, this is 2020 now, right? He continued. Based on current trends, it won't be around if it stays on the same track with the same animal mix and the same production system and the same marketing system as the past 30 years. And I think, I think the hair sheep thing has probably been the most progressive change in the sheep industry that we've experienced because we've got states now that are raising sheep. Some of the southern states had some statistics on it here, but uh, states in the south and southeast, uh, I mean, they increased their sheep production numbers, some of them up to 50%. I think uh, Tennessee and Kentucky increased their sheep production numbers of 50% during this past decade or so. And uh, the other thing that we're talking about here that we haven't said much about is marketing. The majority of the lamb meat consumed now is by ethnic groups. And it's estimated by 2040, they'll be the majority of the population. And uh, the latest estimate, I think, is that they're consuming 60% of the lamb already. So the so-called traditional market is changing 
And I think our total, I think this ethnic thing is going to be the key. If you look at Texas right now, they're no longer a wool state. They're a hair sheep state. In San Angelo, Texas sells four times as many hair sheep lambs in their auction at San Angelo, which is the top auction in the state, as they do uh, typical traditional lambs right now. And uh, who would have thought that 20 years ago? I mean, it's it's just a dramatic change, and they're the they're the largest hair sheep state we have in the in the country right now. So uh, I think, and with this market they have in Pennsylvania, uh, is another big market for uh, for hair sheep, and uh, it it goes into the non-traditional or ethnic market. So I think that's going to be part of our future. That's you know, part of the system, the, the system that Dwayne Ocker probably didn't see in, in coming, but it, it it is coming. Yeah, we just have a, uh, last week here, we have a bi-monthly sale here in Middle Tennessee, a graded sale. And uh, last Monday at the sale, there was 1,200 and maybe 80 sheep and goats and uh i would say 95 percent of all the lambs were hair lambs and uh and it, right? yeah and it was basically all for the uh muslim holiday so uh, it's not going away that sale typically has about 400 lambs and kids every other week and uh with a holiday bump it you know it jumped to you know almost 1300 so um, that's, I imagine 15, 10, I bet 10 years ago, they were lucky to have 200 head. Yep. Well, it's good. It's going to continue. Absolutely. But there's a, there's another thing that needs attention that hasn't been given attention. And, uh, it's probably one of the most important, um, and it's the, get my notes here straightened out. It's relative to the, the product itself, lamb itself. And uh, it's the meat value of lamb. Lamb has the characteristics to offer the highest quantity of omega-3 fatty acid, which is a fatty acid that has, has to be gotten through of either fish or fish oil or meat because it's it's something that even the veg, vegetarians can't come up with unless they do that go that route and uh this omega three fatty acid is deficient in seventy percent of the American population right now, and it's been known medically associated with uh, health issues that include heart, brain, and nerve functions. And why the sheep industry is not recognizing this, I don't know why they haven't picked up on this, but it's something that ought to establish lamb as what I would refer to as a red meat health food. And effectively yeah. established and could be recognized for the millennials Mm -hmm. Some of the younger people, I think this would really help 
increase the demand for lamb meat. Did y'all do any but research in Idaho on that? No. So have no. you read or seen any, how do we increase that in our lamb? Is that diet, genetics? Uh, diet, has, diet has an influence, but, but sheep naturally, more than any other beef species, meat species, naturally have more omega-3. But if you are grazing your lambs, you're increasing your omega-3 four times the level that it would be if you were feeding a high-grain diet. Yeah. So grass-fed lambs would have four times the level of omega-3. Yeah, and I think that really has some impact, you know, to, or has the potential to really have an impact for a lot of these these range flocks out here because, you know, a lot of the range flocks they are on forage. I mean, they're on the mountain grass all summer and the range grass, and um, so they are getting, you know, a really high level of omega threes. And I mean, you know, these 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 sheep that are out on range and, you know, the in a natural environment. I mean, they're that's probably some of the some of the healthiest meat in the world. And um, I don't know how y'all call that grass. I came, I went to Salt Lake City three years ago and I drove back, I drove to Vegas to a show and I went up to Salt Lake City to meet some customers and then drove back across, you know, to Denver, then to Kansas City and back to Tennessee. And, and I was coming through Wyoming there off the interstate. Yeah, I don't know, there might've been a thousand sheep, 2000, there might've been a hundred thousand. I don't know, there were sheep everywhere. And uh, I don't know what they were eating. This was in March, you know, and I'm like, God, what are these things eating? You know, and uh, they look like they were in very good condition. You know, I, you know, back here in the Southeast, you know, every time you see 50 sheep, you got three guard dogs and two minerals and a hay bale, you know, you got all this stuff and I'm coming through there and I'm like, these things are eating dirt. I mean, I don't know how you call that grass. I mean, it's just a different world, you know. Yeah, and I mean, there's the you know the mountain grasses in the summer, and Dr. Parker would probably have a. a I don't, Dr. Parker, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, when you're doing range research out at the sheep experiment station, um, did I mean you know large? I mean, you know they're not really they'll nibble at the sagebrush, but it's not a, a very large portion of their diet by any means. Um, no, that's right. Did did you find well, that they, they were? Of course, primary? the the, uh, the, cha the challenge with the range sheep lambs, if they're not finished, then they go into a dry lot. And if they mm -hmm. go into a dry lot, then we're backing away from you know the forages that would stimulate the most production of omega threes. Yeah, so I've I've wondered about I mean, that. That doesn't say. Big pardon. I was just saying, I've wondered about that as a strategy and, and love, would love to get your thoughts because, you know, a lot of these lambs, they get chipped out and go to the feedlots um, to finish. Um, do you think there is an opening for these lambs to be shipped off the range to perhaps, a, you know, a, a cover crop, you know, with a high, a high nutrient, um, you know, quality? And, and to, to ship these lambs to instead of a feedlot to, you know, pretty high nutrition forage uh operation to finish in one of these areas you know further south like, like california or, or um you know somewhere where you have it you know close to a processing plant instead of um instead of a feedlot 
to keep that that kind of forage based and and really an, an entirely forage fed lamb all the way through do you think that's a a possible solution with the range lambs that you saw shipped out of here out of the west yeah i saw i i knew uh i knew range producers in uh in utah that sent their lambs to finish on uh, alfalfa in california to mm, do the okay. very thing you're talking about and then go from there directly to the feed uh, to the slaughter yeah yeah one of the yep. the the things that that I think maybe has a possibility, and I don't know, I'm just throwing this out as an idea. I would love, again, love to see what your thoughts would be, but um, I was recently talking with a, a a person interested in getting started that is grazing uh, almond orchards down in, in California, and they have to have them, you know, they can start putting them out there October, November after the almonds are harvested, um, and they can, you know, grow a pretty nice cover crop in there. Perhaps, I don't know, do you think that might be an option where these animals and these lambs could come off of range, go down to there, serve a multi-purpose, graze off these these orchards and, uh, you know, provide the fertilizer and the cover crop, um, you know, termination and then go straight from there to the feedlot and, and capture that benefit that you're talking about with the omega-3s and reaching that market? Yeah, I think I think that would. It would work. But the the big thing we have to get done now is to get the American Sheep Industry Association ready to sell lamb as a red meat health food based on what I'm talking about here, because yeah. this is this is being ignored. I mean, they people are just letting that fly un, unnoticed, and it's the thing that would sell lamb above any of the other meats. And particularly when the, the ratio for this omega-3 to omega-6, for instance, is supposed to be about 1 to 4. And for most people, it's 1 to 40. And then people <laughs> talk about, brag about eating walnuts. And walnuts are so high on omega-6s that you, you'd, have to, you'd have to have a ton of omega-3s in order to balance out the omega six. I mean, yeah. we don't, our diets are not being addressed carefully enough for our health. And uh, that needs to be, that needs to be, needs to happen. You're talking to a guy that loves milkshakes and cheeseburgers. So that's pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you can, you can put a lamb burger on the slide. I had lamb burger for lunch today, actually. So, uh, well, good for you. On the omega-3 thing, I got to, so wonder how long, and, and maybe there's research already been done. So, you know, these lambs have been out on the range or the mountains or wherever, and uh, and they bring them in to, uh, there's a big lamb feeder just north of Denver that I drove by one time. And, you know, how long in that feedlot do their omega-3 ratio drop? You know, um, is that something that's measurable? You know, uh, I mean, I know they're probably only there for 30 or 60 days, maybe, uh, to put a finish on them. Uh, but how, how long does it take to lose that uh, gain? That, 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 I, that I can't address. I, I, don't, I don't have anything objective, objective on that. It's a good question. But I would mm -hmm. imagine it could happen, but I don't know how quick it would. 
Yeah. And, and, and theoretically, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you know, the omega threes and omega sixes primarily are stored in the, the fat content. So if you're trying to improve the finish and you're adding fat content and that fat content you're adding is, is based off of a grain diet, I would imagine that that ratio would change, would change fairly rapidly because you're adding a higher. I think that's, um, that would be, that would be what I would suspect. So has, is there any breeds that are higher? Uh, is it possible for breeds, certain breeds to be higher and, and uh, genetically with omega threes and others? That, that hasn't been identified that I'm aware of. Cause I know there's I suppose a, it's possible. I suppose it's possible that the digestive system could vary somewhat and allow that to occur, but I, don't know of any data that's been analyzed on that. Well, it's, uh, I'd, I'd like to see the industry advertise, promote, advertise the real natural value of lamb relative to this particular thing. And then, uh, then we could go ahead and call it the red meat elk food. Yeah. Well, I think that that provides such a big market and not only a, a market size, but also a market price and a realization of, of lamb. You know, our, um, our president here at the Idaho Wool Growers pointed out a very interesting and a true fact that, that lamb is the only meat accepted by every religion in the world. And it's also, um, you know, hap happens to be very healthy as well. And so, you know, there's definitely a market, there's the ability for acceptability um, across the board. And I think we just need to do a better job of promotion. And, and there's a lot of success possible for the breed. Yeah, um, the hardest thing uh, I have with lamb, uh, we cook a lot of lamb and, uh, you know, years ago, we didn't know how to cook it. And over time we figured it out. Um, but man, I, I hate the thought of somebody, you know, buying a package of lamb at, at Walmart or wherever, off me or Caleb or whatever, and going home and screwing it up the very first time because that is your initial, yeah, that's your initial taste it, it, of lamb. It could happen very easily. And when those World War II veterans came back that were in the South Pacific, they, they wouldn't eat cheap meat and they wouldn't eat their family, they wouldn't give it to their families or anybody else because of exactly what you're saying. Yeah, you get over 145 degrees and then you have some fat flavor changes that are become negative and turn you off and and that's that's exactly right what you're talking about. Yeah, and we we eat uh tough steaks and sorry chicken every day of our lives. You know, store-bought pork chops to me have no flavor. Uh, they're very tough, but yet I still go get them. I still eat them again. But with lamb or rabbit or goat or any of the other um, so-called as exotic type meats, uh, your first taste is usually uh, your first and last if you if it's not prepared right. You know. Um, That's right. So so I think we I think we need to to push our culinary schools um, to have more lamb in their program uh, to teach people how to cook it, you know, get it out, make it more popular, 
a lot of free samples, whatever it takes. Uh, you got to stick it in people's mouth to, to promote, you know. Yeah. So well, it's a good, it's a, it's a good product. And, uh, we just, uh, have to have to let more people know about the value of it. I think. Definitely. Yeah. I just give a beef producer, uh, I'm in a trucking business and I've got a trailer manufacturer who raises cattle. And, and over the last year or two, he started to ask me about sheep. Just, you know, he's kind of curious. And uh, so it's probably a month ago, eh, probably two weeks ago, I was going down to look at a trailer and, and I took him some lamb chops and, and, a, and a couple of shanks. And, uh, and I said, here, take these home, put them in the freezer, uh, holler at me when you're ready to cook them. So he sent me a message yesterday, said, hey, we're gonna cook these this weekend. So I sent him some recipes and I said, follow them exactly, you know, if it says turn it off at two minutes and 20 seconds, not 221, not two, follow the directions exactly. You know, don't uh, right. think it, don't just follow directions. And uh, so I'm curious to see how it goes. <laughs> well, if he follows the directions, he'll be all right. If he follows the directions, he'll be asking for more lamb pretty soon. Well, you, you bring up another thing that uh, I probably should mention. And, and with the uh, Katahdin's being the parasite resistance the way they are, I think the beef industry will get more interested in sheep now as a mixed species grazing, which would bring them more total quantity of production from their forages than what they're getting with just beef cattle alone. And uh, that, ought to be, that ought to be something that will help sell sheep to our beef cattle raisers you know i think and, that's uh, i think it's a bigger deal than we realize um probably two years ago the tennessee sheep producers uh did a function with the tennessee cattlemen's association um, of course they're a really big organization they have big fancy events and have vendors and stuff and you know we meet at the fairgrounds in a building you know and uh, so they asked us to to join them and have one big event. And uh, so we did, and we had a sign up booth um, for people to sign up for more information about sheep. And I was amazed at how many people, cattle farmers who didn't even know we were gonna be there, come by and say, oh yeah, I got 200 ewes. And, uh, oh, I got 150 ewes, or I got 500 ewes running my cows. They're not breeders. They could care less about genetics. They could care less about anything, but they love having those sheep in with their cattle doing regenerative uh, ag, uh, multi-species grazing and all this stuff. Uh, I think it, there's a, a big push over the last five or six years. I think there's more of that going on than we in the pure breed world know about because they're not our guy that's not the people we see or talk to um but there's a well, lot of that's that's really good and i we i was involved with uh uh dr van Curren, who was a uh a grass man forage man back early on when i was at worcester and we did companion grazing and you get so much more production in companion grazing than you do by 
individual species species grazing. And uh, but the thing of it is, at that time, if you have to drench your sheep every three or four weeks, well, then you know it wasn't. <laughs> that's not something a beef man wants to do. Right. But you don't have to do that now. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I keep. Uh, I keep using that as an excuse to keep horses. My wife thinks I have too many horses, and I tell her that's multi-species grazing. That is good for the environment. (laughs) (laughs) Can't Uh, argue with that. So so a quick question for you along those lines. Um, You know, obviously out here in the West, there are a lot of large-scale cattle operations, um, a lot of them running on rangeland. Um, So you just mentioned, you know, that, that hair sheep and, and sheep with parasite resistance are making inroads into, um, you know, into cattle uh, herds around the nation. Um, I guess a question for, for practically how that would work out here, since you were involved in, in rangeland research at the sheep experiment station, and you've seen, you know, up close for a long time, how sheep work out on a range operation. Um, do you see hair sheep, ever fitting into a range operation with cattle? Um, do you see um, wool sheep fitting in with cattle? Um, and with the the new um, development of, and the access to the parasite resistant CBVs for all breeds now, um, do you think that we'll see a push in wool breeds for parasite resistance that will allow range cattle producers to incorporate wool breeds or do you think that that hair sheep are their best option um how 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 does how do you think that works on a range operation for incorporating sheep with cattle well you know if uh if the range sheep flocks i think the average lamb crop percent now produced is less than 120 percent as i said earlier with only 50 percent used having twins uh that's that's the first move they ought to make if they want more lamb they need to incorporate some genetics to get higher lamb crop percentages if they're not going to do that with katahdins as fertile as they are and with the ethnic market growing as fast as it is there may be more market for that kind of a lamb than what there is with the wool lamb and particularly at the wool prices don't change much. I mean, we're. I, I doubt if. I doubt if we can even pay for the shearing and the feed cost. Every every pound of clean wool uh, requires 32 pounds of hay equivalent. So you can re- run the math on that. And uh, we're not getting anything for wool. So if we're not getting anything for wool, and we've got a sheep out here that's only having 50% twins, well, we could have one that is having 100% twins. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Well, that's why I raise Katahdin's. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they say if... Uh... But that's, that's, that's not going to be easy to sell. No, it's not. <laughs> Tradition that's... dies hard, right? Yeah, I had a, uh, in my LAM 509 class at Ohio State, my roommate was from, from the coast of Oregon, and he's probably a fifth, sixth. I mean, they've had sheep generations, you know, and his great, 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 great grandpa had 
150,000 ewes, you know, and anyway, he's down to 4,000 ewes, his family is. And um, so I asked him just, you know, how do I get you guys to try Katahdin? And he goes, I need, I need a thousand to try. Man, that is, that is, <laughs> that is tough, you know. Uh, yeah. And until, until those numbers, um, you know, he, he don't care that, that they're parasite resistant, have mostly twins because he, he can't get enough sheep to try, you know. And uh, so he's still using a, a finer wool ram to where his wool still has some value. Um, right. But yeah, man, that, that is such a, a tough, uh, that's a big hill to climb that, you know, may never happen, you know. Yeah, so a, a question along those lines, um, you know, for wool producers, you know, that are selling wool, because I know a few that, you know, they sell wool to, to Pendleton or, um, you know, they have a, a market and they're, you know, getting a, a premium because they have a, a fine wool. Um, do you think that there is, I guess, what would be their, what, what should be their strategy to increase lambing percentage? Do you think it's solely using EBVs or do you think crossing in something like a, a fin sheep is going to drive their, their lambing or their lambing percentage up high enough to, to increase that percentage without switching to a hair sheep? What, what's kind of the best path well, forward, do you think? Um, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, if I were a target breeder and had 50% of my used 20, I wouldn't be happy. I would get a fin, fin Rambouillet ram, keep them wool quality, 25% fin will give me 25% more lambs. Okay. That'd be an overnight deal for me. That's serious cash difference right there. Yep. I'd still have more wool quality, and I'd have 25% more lambs to sell. Yeah. But can you know, I, could, oh, I, I could do that overnight. Like you're talking. Getting a good fin ram lay cross F1 ram. Like you're talking on EBVs, though. A lot of these people. You know, if you're not measuring your trait or you're not measuring your gain, you you don't right. have a way of knowing. Uh, Mr. Parker, we read an article uh, somewhere, it's probably a month ago, uh, that maybe is an Ohio State Fair, the average size of a lamb in the class had went up 20-something pounds over the last 15 or 20 years but the loin size has not changed at all. Yeah. Now there's uh, muscle thickness has to be measured in order to keep it coming in the right direction. And it can be measured, you know, ultrasound. Yeah, I've, I've always said, I wish I had enough disposable income where I could go to Let's just say Sedalia, since that's the biggest show sale in the world, and buy the most expensive, highest ram there, and just drop him right there in the pen and cut him in half. I mean that that would be <laughs> my goal in life to be able to do that. <laughs> I think you know, you'd have a lot judge, of people walk away. Yeah, well, you know the judge <laughs> talks about all this stuff. Let's cut him open. Yeah. Let's, let's see if what you're what you're selling me is right. 
you know. It's been going on, been going on for a long time. <laughs> yeah, that was something that really impressed me with the 509 class was being able to touch all these sheep, listen to what everybody was saying about them, and then uh, and then come back tomorrow and see them hanging by their feet. Um, what what year did you take that class? 2016, I believe. It was with the Lamb the Lamb Feeders Association. Did the Howard Wyman School there? Oh yeah. Now, let's see. Uh, uh, can't think of the fellow's name now. Would would have probably been one of the teachers. Main Zerby. Teacher. Uh, Henry Zerby was there. Yep. Yeah, yep. Zerby. Yep. He's a good one. Man, if I I told him while I was there. If I was going to college and my my degree was going to be in anything and I had took this class prior to college, I would have swapped and and been under Zerby's uh, mentorship. I, I would have changed to his major. Uh, super guy, very knowledgeable. I mean, just a great person. He was one of the best. Yeah. He's... He's no longer with the university now, you know. Yeah, he's at Wendy's or something, I think. Uh, yeah, he's with Wendy's. But I've, I've known Henry for a long time, and he was he was one of the best. Yeah, I'm, I'd really like to have our Katahdin Expo uh, at Ohio State to do a similar deal. You know, they've got the coolers, they got the kitchens, uh, and just have it solely focused on carcass evaluation and, um, you know, um, let people see that. I, I think that would, that would be an evolutionary type change in our breed uh, for people to see. Because, you know, one of the, there was one Dorper and one Katahdin in the group of lambs that we got to choose from. And by grabs, I was doing the Katahdin come hell or high water. I mean, I'm I'm processing that Katahdin, you know. If anybody's going to make fun of this 85-pound lamb, it's going to be me. And uh, when you get <laughs> percentage-wise, uh, based on his size, of course, he was the smallest lamb in the group. But his loin scan wasn't much smaller percentage-wise than the 250-pound Suffolk that was – you know, force fed full feed just to make fat for the class. Um, I'm not surprised. So, so yeah, there's, I, there's been an effort to put her. some, there's been an effort over time to put muscle on them. And, and Peel started out with some sucker crossing early on. Yeah, I think uh, the hardest part is, is, you know, especially east of the Mississippi and south anyway. Not so much probably in, in your world and, you know, say Missouri farther west where you got, you know, you're, you guys are really close to, to the grain, to the grain belt, you know. In the south, we got tons of fescue and tons of Bermuda grass. So everybody just has them out on pasture. And uh, we, we don't put a value to that. We just think it's free. Oh, I got tons of grass. Um, but it's it's hard to compare carcasses uh, from from one that's never left a barn and one that's never seen a barn, you know. Okay, guys, we're going to take a break uh, in our conversation with Dr. Parker. 
uh, wow, if, if you enjoy genetics and data, then uh, you need to play this one over and over and over. Uh, I know I will. Uh, I just I just can't get enough of, of the 60 years of knowledge that this man has, has done for the sheep industry. So I uh, look forward to our next episode. It'll be our final episode with Dr. Parker. So stay tuned uh, uh, for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Sheep Things podcast. Stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates. We want your feedback, so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com for suggestions or comments. Thank you and see you later.